Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Centre here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, and I run the U.S. Centre's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. This week, we're bringing you another extra inning for The Ballpark to discuss the recent announcement of a second round of talks between the U.S. and North Korea. Following a meeting with North Korea's nuclear envoy, Kim Yong-chol, on the 19th of January, President Trump announced that he would hold a summit with Kim Jong-un, North Korea's leader. To discuss the implications of the announcement and what these talks, which are scheduled for the end of February, might hold, I spoke to a North Korea expert, Stefan Haggard, who was the Krauss Distinguished Professor at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. In 2019, he is also the Susan Strange Professor in the Department of International Relations at the LSE. He's the author of three books on North Korea, covering the country's famine, refugees, and most recently, on sanctions and engagement. I started out by asking Stefan about the background to the summit meeting and what's gotten us to now. Basically, what's gotten us to now is the fact that the aftermath of the June summit and the June 12th statement following that meeting weren't able to set in train an adequate process of negotiation between the two parties to make any progress. Uh, Secretary Pompeo has been to Pyongyang several times, but not until a summit really looked like it was in the cards did you get the chief North Korean negotiator to Washington, which happened on Friday, and also a parallel set of talks going in Stockholm that are beginning now, more or less as we speak. So like the first summit last summer, this appears to have been organized very quickly. Is that unusual? And are there any risks to this sort of diplomatic speed? Yes, I think everyone who supported the the first summit, myself included, saw one major downside risk, which was that the time frame between when Trump accepted the invitation to do that in March and the date of the summit itself, June, left very little time to set in place a set of sustained negotiations. And in fact, the North Koreans blunted those negotiations. They really tried to put them off so that things could be handled to the summit in a very general way. But what's been most disappointing is that the follow-up period after the summit hasn't been very fruitful. And uh, the North Koreans have been resisting meeting with Trump's appointed uh, North Korean uh, uh, chief negotiator uh, on the technical side. And the meetings that Secretary Pompeo has had in Pyongyang have been frustrating, to say the least. So do you think Kim Jong-un is really willing to denuclearize? And what do the North Koreans even mean by denuclearization? The whole question of what denuclearization even means is has really been a center of the, of the whole discussion. The North Koreans prefer a formulation which is the denuclearization of the entire peninsula. Now, that's a strange formulation from an American and South Korean point of view because the United States pulled tactical nuclear weapons out of South Korea in 1991, and there haven't been any nuclear weapons in South Korea since, either tactical or strategic. And so what the North Koreans appear to mean is that the United States is either going to have to offer some sort of security guarantee or may even try to get the Americans to limit the strategic presence of certain types of assets around the peninsula, carriers, strategic bombers. Uh, And so this has really been one of the main sticking points, that uh, this use of the language um, denuclearization of the whole peninsula. 
With respect to whether Kim Jong-un is willing to give up his nuclear weapons, I think the obvious answer to that is that he, he can keep, keep them and yet at the same time get sanctions relief. He would obviously prefer that to denuclearizing because the nuclear weapons give him at least a minimal deterrent. Uh, the question is whether he can do that. And my suspicion, frankly, is that Kim Jong-un himself may not know. It depends on what the Americans are willing to give and uh, how the negotiations go in this next phase. When you talk about what the Americans are willing to give, what, what might they be able to be willing to give? The central issue with respect to American concessions is, from the North Korean point of view, a relief with respect to the sanctions. And here we have to go back to the central role of China in this whole game, because over the course of 2016, it became pretty clear that the Chinese were getting increasingly upset about the risks for them of Kim Jong-un's pursuit of his nuclear program. There were two tests in 2016. Both of those were followed by UN Security Council resolutions, which broke new ground in basically uh, getting the Chinese to agree to sanctioning North Korea's commercial trade. In previous UN Security Council resolutions, the uh, Chinese had agreed largely to measures which were targeted at the what might be called the missile nuclear industrial complex. But by shutting off trade, at least nominally, in large commodity categories like iron ore, um, marine products, textiles, uh, the Chinese were really, for the first time, putting a more serious squeeze on the North Koreans. And the North Koreans want those and other sanctions against them lifted, at least in part, uh, before they start to take serious steps towards denuclearization. You've touched on what the summit might mean for China, but what might it mean for other countries in the wider region? So, say, South Korea and Japan, the really immediate neighbors. Of course, the the other main player in this whole saga is, is the South Koreans. And what's important to note there is that South Korean politics is divided not just along standard left-right lines, but very strongly on the whole question of tilting towards an emphasis on the alliance with the United States versus tilting towards uh, more engagement, more direct engagement with North Korea. After the uh, impeachment of Park Geun-hye, uh, the presidency was assumed uh, following the election, obviously, by Moon Jae-in, who is on the center left. Um, he was a chief of staff of a previous center left president, No Mu Hyun. And he's been very anxious to push the North-South process along and try to use his role uh, as an engager with North Korea to facilitate the larger bargain on nuclear issues, which is likely to take place only between the United States and North Korea directly. So looking for the next few weeks ahead of the summit at the end of February, what sort of diplomatic progress might have to have been made in advance of the meeting? The biggest thing we've seen as a result of uh, developments just over this weekend, this was after actually the announcement of the summit or more or less concurrent with it, is we've set in place uh, a diplomatic process that involves what we call high-level negotiations, which will take place between Pompeo. And by the way, the, North Korean, the chief North Korean uh, negotiator actually spent an hour and 45 minutes with Trump in the Oval Office. Uh, either on Friday or Saturday, 
And so it's clear that we're now back in a world where high level, level talks are possible precisely because a summit has been agreed. But the other thing that's happened over the weekend is that a set of lower level talks on technical issues, it looks like it's now getting off the ground. Those uh, negotiations will take place in Stockholm between uh, President Trump's uh, designated North Korea leader, Steve Began, and uh, his counterpart, uh, De uh, Vice Foreign Minister Choi Sung-hui. So uh, we should be looking for both the frequency of those meetings, um, whether they continue to move forward. It's doubtful that too much detail will be released in the run-up to the summit, but if they're talking that's a sign that things are at least moving forward. What could be announced at the summit's end, if anything? Do you think we'll see sanctions relief for North Korea? I think it's going to be very hard for uh, the United States to undertake a significant sanctions relief. So uh, it's not impossible that something like that will take place. And there are a number of reasons for that. One is that actually rolling back multilateral sanctions is quite complicated. Because if you go back to the UN Security Council, as you did following the Iran deal, and actually wind down the existing extant UN Security Council resolutions that impose sanctions, it would be probably impossible to get those reinstated. So I think the United States is not willing to undertake that kind of formal sanctions relief going through the United Nations to get previous resolutions unwound. But I think it is possible that what the United States could do, and it may have to accept this just as a matter of fact, is it could either give a nod to the South Koreans to move ahead incrementally on some of the things that they would like to do with the North, humanitarian assistance, perhaps opening road and rail lines. There's been discussion of reopening this resort on Mount Kungang, which is in North Korea, or the Kaesong Industrial Complex. Uh, or that it would have to um, turn a, a blind eye to what the Chinese are doing, which is effectively relaxing the sanctions regime unilaterally. So those are the type of things on the economic front that could be, um, be a part of this. Uh, another is that we have impending exercises coming up in March. It's possible that the United States would either scale those back or cancel them altogether. Uh, those were set to resume after they were suspended following the Singapore summit. And then finally, I'll close with uh, this uh, with one other thing that's been uh, a piece of the discussion. Ultimately, the longer term objective here is to move from an armistice on the Korean peninsula to a peace regime, an actual settlement of the uh, Korean War. And one possibility would be some kind of statement on the part of the leaders not that the armistice is replaced, but that they see the Korean War as effectively over and that they intend to move forward uh, to replace the armistice with a peace regime. Those negotiations are going to be complicated too, but you could get a down payment on that with a kind of uh, signal of intent that the U.S. is willing to consider a negotiation of that sort. Of course, it's almost impossible to think about the U.S. at the moment and not think about the, the government shutdown. From a diplomatic point of view, does the shutdown affect anything in terms of the, the preparation for the summit? Will there be any sort of scarce resources, as it were, or will everything be proceeding as normal despite the shutdown? It's possible if we're really in, you know, if this thing really prolongs, which I doubt, 
that could affect the holding of the summit. If for some reason we were still deadlocked at the end of February, then uh, it, it might limit the ability of the president to get away. I think that, uh, again, choosing to hold a summit on sort of short notice could be seen as having a, a political motive, uh, Trump getting a significant foreign policy win. But I should emphasize that there's still very substantial downside risks of the summit. And I wanted to highlight one, going back to a question you asked about the neighbors. Uh, Japan is very concerned about a possible agreement that could come out of a summit in which uh, the North Koreans would cap their production and deployment of intercontinental ballistic missiles. And this, of course, from a U.S. perspective, would be seen as a plus, and particularly for President Trump, because he's portrayed this issue as a question of the defense of the homeland uh, following the uh, North Korean nuclear test, ICBM test last year. Um, in 2017, excuse me. But um, the, uh, the question for the Japanese is that leaves them not only with the short and intermediate range missiles uh, intact, but it also sends a signal that the United States is willing to walk away from that relationship and basically to strike a deal over the heads of the Japanese. So that's been a, a, a set of issues that's uh, percolating between uh, Japan, Tokyo, and Washington. And the Abe government has been very intent on trying to send a signal to the United States that it's a piece of the landscape and wants its interests to be taken into account. Thanks to Stefan Haggard for speaking to me today. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson with help from Michaela Herman. The Ballpark Podcast is supported by the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger in the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz man. Look him up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all of our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk. That's spelled the British way, by the way. Or send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And tell your friends about us, all your friends. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.